Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Last month, the state government announced an $800 million levy on property developments intended to fund social housing for vulnerable people. And then less than a fortnight later, it dumped the policy after a negative response from the housing industry. So what now for social housing? Um, Emma King is with VCOS, the Victorian Council of Social Service. And Emma, it's great to have you on Triple R. And so we did hear about a 1.75% levy, which would kick in in a couple of years on new developments. And and then the reforms were done, dusted and finished already um, less than a fortnight later. Can you fill us in on what happened? Oh, look, thank you so much for having me on. Look, this is pretty devastating. So in terms of what we've had is, you know, uh, a situation where there was a proposal put forward that was going to deliver about 1,700 new social housing properties a year. And, uh, you know... The reality is then that we've been told that that is now not progressing. Um, I think, you know, when you you sort of lift above this, it's not really a political issue or a tax issue or a who said what to who issue. It's an issue about homelessness and the fact that we've got a dire need for more social housing and finding the money to pay for it. You know, we've got about 100,000 people before COVID who are languishing on public housing or social housing waiting lists who, who can't get in. I mean, that's really desperate and we've got to find a way forward. Absolutely. It's, it's such a pressing need that really sort of needs addressing in the here and now. But, uh, I mean... Essentially, there was the you know various um, kind of people from the property industry and councils as well who were aligned in 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 not supporting this policy. Does that suggest there wasn't enough consultation, perhaps, going into this to make sure that the relevant players were on board with what the government was doing? Look, I'm not sure. I think that one of the things around this is that. You know, no matter which way you look at it, you've got a desperate need for more social housing. I know when I look at other states, for example, not all of them, but some of the other states in Australia and looking overseas, things like inclusionary zoning, um, they, they happen. The, the, the reality is, you know, so you might have a property development that's been built and rather than having a levy, you know, the developer's got to give over a certain amount of their property to social housing. So that happens elsewhere. The sky hasn't fallen in. Um, and the reality is it provides some of the homes that we actually need. So irrespective of people choosing to use their, their power, particularly, I think, in an election year, it is actually looking, you know, kind of rising above that and looking beyond and saying, well, we need more social housing. We've had the state government... Uh, you know, uh, chip in their kind of $5.3 billion to build 12,000 new properties over the next four years. But look, we need 6,000 homes a year over 10 years to begin to address the need that we've got. So the public, what's been put in in terms of looking at the state government, it's one piece of a puzzle, but we need more than that. So for example, we need the federal government chipping in. We do need to look at whether it's a levy or some form of inclusion rezoning or both. We've got to look at all of the different parts of the puzzle that kind of need to sit together to, to address the actual need that we've got. And, you know, irrespective of, of games that people choose to play, 
I'm not very interested in that. What mm. I'm interested in is actually saying, well, if I'm sleeping in a car tonight with my daughter, I actually want to know who's going to help me find a home. So let's leave the politics behind and let's look at actually how we address the problem. So now this is off the table, shelved. I'm not sure which um, version of pause um, we're using for for this particular uh, social housing levy um, that the the state government came out with last month. But what is now in place, Emma? Well, what's in place is that we've got uh, a very long, as I've mentioned, very long waiting list for people who can't get a home. We do have the state government that's given their $5.3 billion to build 12,000 properties over four years. But what's, what's in place is a really long waiting list. So it's, it's great that that's there, but we do need the federal government to step up. Um, we've, you know, we're heading pretty close to a federal election, and I think it's really important that we put pressure on for them to step up and deliver. And no matter how you look at it, we're going to have to look at other measures to draw the amount of uh, investment in that we need to deliver the social housing that we need for our community. And I think it's really interesting that we're having this discussion and watching, you know, the show that's played out over the last couple of weeks because no matter what, we need more we need more homes. And I do think that during COVID people became a bit more compassionate around the desperate need that we saw in our community for people who were doing it really tough, people who were desperately impacted by COVID. And we we saw and if we didn't know it already, how important it is to have a safe, secure and affordable home that's close to community. If you've got kids, it's close to their kinder or their school, close to where people can get jobs. So that's that's where we're at now. And we've got to look at ways that we can deliver 6,000 homes a year over 10 years. And we need a really good long-term plan to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, I'm also thinking about us talking, uh, you know, in the context of the floods um, up, up north yeah. as well. And, and just it's so clear to see how important it is to have a, a safe, secure home. And, you know, hearts go out to everyone mm-hmm. who's, who's affected by those, of course. But um, I note yeah. there's been a, a new report from the Australian Council for Social Service detailing how poverty and, and income inequality is sort of worse than it was pre-pandemic. And I mean, as you yeah. alluded to, there were these measures and policies put in place um, as sort of emergency measures, I suppose, that did lift a whole lot of people out of poverty, you know, pretty much overnight. From where you sit, what's the current state of things for, for people in Victoria? Just sort of how hard are some people doing it at this stage of, of the pandemic? Um, two things. One is, you're right, because there was an interesting part. It became about choice and the choice of governments about where do you invest your money. And a whole lot of people were lifted out of poverty for the first time and they were able to do things like buy their food and buy medication and things that often they can't do because they don't have enough money. And, you know, we know that we desperately need to address that situation. So what we are seeing on the ground is we're seeing people who are doing it really hard, people who lost their jobs COVID, people who might be able to pick up work now, but they're not necessarily getting the same number of hours. And it's one of the things that's hidden in the unemployment figures. Because if you get an hour of work a week, you're not considered unemployed. So you don't show up in those figures. Uh, And we know that for a number of people, you know, it's, it's really tough. The reality is they don't have the job they did before the pandemic. We look at a whole range of different industries that are just starting to to get going in what we think might be a bit of a bumpy time ahead and whether that be the music industry, whether that might be looking at our hospitality industry. And at the same time, 
You, know, you look at our, for, for want of a better term, our caring industry, whether that be disability, aged care, etc., it is predicated by highly feminised employment, um, really, really low levels of pay and really insecure work. And if we are going to value the people who work in our industries that are critically important, we have to pay them properly, we have to give them decent um, hours and make sure they've got enough money to make ends meet. Because I think that's this irony when we look at our care sector, um, that they're the very people who are going to be calling on our frontline organisations for help, even when they've got a job, because they don't have enough money to make ends meet. All really good points there, Emma. I wonder, I mean, you mentioned the federal election, there's a state election as well. What's your sense of how these kinds of issues are going to be dealt with in the the, the kind of um, context of the federal and, and state election um, both happening this year in Victoria. Yeah. Um, I mean, going by this particular housing policy, um, it, it perhaps doesn't doesn't bode well for bold reform. What's your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. What we're seeing in terms of the top thing on people's minds is cost of living. Um, and that's you know, a bit different if you look back and, and not to say that education, etc., doesn't um, count, because it certainly still does. But we're seeing cost of living front and centre. And I think that's, that probably speaks to the really challenging time that we've just gone through. And obviously it's always an issue, but it's particularly an issue at the moment because when you've got the situation where people are literally saying, well... You know, I have to make the so-called choice between do I put three meals on the table um, or do I buy my medication for the week? That's the kind of choice that no one should have to make, but far too many people do. We're seeing huge pressure on the rental market at the moment um, in terms of the cost of rentals going up, and there's been lots of commentary about that. And also the fact that lots of people were moving, often all were choosing to live in regional areas because while the squeeze was on, um, in terms of those properties being more expensive, the reality is as we're seeing this shift, the COVID shift of more people relocating in regional Victoria, uh, we're seeing the cost of houses go up. And what that means is for other people who live locally, the reality is their rents are being jacked up and they often can't afford to stay where they were living. So there's a number of trends playing out that I think are going to impact quite significantly on the federal election. But I think first and foremost, we we are seeing that message about the cost of living and housing. Yeah, and I mean, and this issue of social housing that we've spoken about is, is such an important one to, to keep the spotlight on as well as we lead up to, to both those elections. Emma, it's always great to have you on Triple R. Thanks for spending some time with us this morning. Thank you so much. Lovely to speak to you. Likewise. Emma King there, the CEO of the Victorian Council of Social Service, chatting uh, sort of in the context of, um, of a, a policy that the state government announced and then dropped about a levy on new developments um, to, to be that would contribute to greater public housing stock as well. So, um, yeah, kind of political decisions being made in the lead up to a state election later on this year. Triple R. Turns out Australia's school system is in worse shape now than it was two decades ago, and this is despite the high-profile review of education by David Gonski and the so-called Gonski reforms, which successive governments have failed to implement. Um, where are these reforms now? There are so many questions. Were they even right, the right for reforms in the first place? And why is it that Australia continues to maintain one of the least equitable education systems in the kind of rich world? Um, so many questions and 
and the right person is with us to answer at least some of them, and that's Chris Bonner. Uh, Chris is a former teacher and principal and an extraordinary explainer of our mind-boggling education system. He is co-author of a new book called Waiting for Gonski, How Australia Failed at Schools, and welcome to Triple R, Chris, and thank you for your excellent book. Thanks, Kalia. Good to talk to you. Yeah, likewise. And, and, I mean, when it comes to understanding today's school education, just reading your book, we must go right back to where public education began. And I wonder if you can take us there first first up. Yeah, look, that's really interesting. And it does start there, or even before, when um, public education, and I'm a public educator, so in, in many ways I've cheered the way public education, that it began and the way it began. But on reflection... Um, so public education is supposed to be inclusive of all people and welcoming and embracing all people. But in a sense, we didn't get that right right at the beginning because the, the Catholic schools and the Catholic system in, in general didn't want to become a part, part of public education as it was envisaged, and, and they decided not to. Well, they sort of decided not to, but in a sense, thinking back, it, you can't, we don't blame them entirely. So we ended up with two systems. We ended up with this sort of free public education system that even the wealthiest people could attend public schools without cost. And we had a parallel Catholic system that the poorest people had to pay fees. And and so right from the beginning, it was never, you know, it was never balanced. It was never, it was never quite right. And, and we've paid a price for that ever since. And so how, how has that laid the foundations for the, the really quite compl- complicated, you know, funding model for schools, you know, public education, non-government schools, which include, you know, religious schools and, and, and private schools as well? To what extent do, do those decisions and, and um, you know, political moves, I suppose, made many, many years ago uh, influence the, the state of the, the situation we, we had when the, the Gonski funding reform and, and reviews were, were announced? Yeah, look, that's really that's really important because what we created, in a sense, fell over during the 1960s. In other words, what happened with the Catholic schools in particular? The brothers and nuns uh, weren't there weren't enough brothers and nuns to to teach children for, for for little or no salary, and they and Catholic schools started enrolling quite a lot of people, especially migrants from Southern Europe. So the schools have grown in size, and they have started having to pay for teachers, and. Now, that really imposed substantial costs on the Catholic system, and they couldn't manage it. And then in, 19, in the early 60s in Goulburn, 1962 in Goulburn, New South Wales, they basically said, look, we've had enough of this. We're going to send all our kids to your schools, the public schools. And the governments reeled back in horror and said, oh, my goodness, we can't afford to pay for this. And, and that began the, the funding of non-government schools in Australia. Well, symbolically it began, the funding of non-government schools in Australia. So we ended up with this this sort of hybrid system, this dual system of public schools that were had to be available to every child from every family and every circumstance everywhere, and then increasingly funded private schools that didn't have those obligations at all. So we ended up with a very, very lopsided, unlevel playing field system and as the funding grew to public to private schools in particular, they began to end up on the on the top end of that unlevel playing field with public schools uh, increasingly struggling uh, because in total funding terms they weren't funded as much as eventually they weren't funded as much as private schools. So really, 
I, that's cutting a really long story short. I hope it makes sense. Well, I mean, look, you you do such a good job um, with your your co-author to explain how this kind of evolves right from the sort of 1870s through to the 1960s and, and then beyond with so many different prime ministers making interventions along the way. And I wonder with regards to the the argument um, put forth there that happened in Goulburn back in the 60s when the schools closed down, the Catholic kids went to uh, public Catholic educated kids went to the local public school and the public system went, whoa, we can't afford this. How much validity is in that argument, Chris, about the public education system not actually being able to afford ev- to educate everybody and we actually need this parallel or dual um, um, uh, system of um, both religious as well as, as non-government schools of other um, other types? Mm, yeah. Look, the, the argument had some validity at the time, um, but the validity has sort of run out of steam because what's happened over the years is that um, um, the funding to non-government schools has increased with very not, not very many limits placed around the amount of that funding. And even since the Gonski Review, that funding has continued to increase, in fact, at a greater rate than the increases to public schools. So the, the arguments about, oh, gosh, we've got to have these private schools because governments can't afford to teach all kids, those arguments are now out of date. In fact, looking back, at, uh, looking at Goulburn now, for example, Goulburn in New South Wales, if all the Catholic kids from the Catholic schools attended the public schools, governments combined, state and federal, would actually save about $2 million a year in recurrent funding. So it's actually costing, in, in many, many parts of Australia, it's costing governments more to have competing public and private schools. In fact, that, that partly explains why we spend so much money on education. But it doesn't necessarily appear in better results. We're really funding a competition. Yeah, and on that, can you just take us to the the sort of, I suppose, decline in in student learning outcomes that particularly provides the impetus for the Gonski Review in 2011? What was the state of things then? You know, according to the the, the you know worldwide PISA rankings, and and what are they like now, a, a decade on since that initial review was announced? Yeah, look, the, the PISA, there was a PISA report in 2009 just before and the information came out in 2010 as the Gonski Review was meeting. And it was showing that our, student, our young people were, were a long way behind um, or measurably behind uh, other countries. And that, concern, that created concern at the time. But what's happened since then, using the same types of measures, is that we've fallen even further behind. And that... that created a bit of, um, I suppose you call it in a sense of moral panic, but with good reason. We had to really review. The review was absolutely essential to find out what what is it that's making this difference in Australia and keeping us from falling and and making us fall behind equivalent countries. And the review itself pinged a few reasons why. We were not appropriately funding the most disadvantaged in our communities. That's that. That's a given, you know. I mean, if you think of a glass half full and uh, being a half-funded school and a, and a glass full, the funded school next to a properly, full, properly funded school, you know which glass it's best to add the water to. It's best to add the resources where it's going to make the difference in that half-full glass. And so that was, that, was, uh, that was a big driver for the Gonski Review. But there's something else, and I don't know whether this is the time to talk about it now, and that is what also was happening 
we were crowding disadvantaged kids into into were crowding struggling kids into already disadvantaged mm. schools, and that was a real a real deal breaker in the sense that fixing that problem would have been a tremendous achievement of the review. What the Gonski review found is that we were doing this, but it did very little about it. And it is now a critical factor because what Gonski found in 2010 and 11 is now worse today. We have more than ever, we are more than ever putting our struggling kids in disadvantaged schools. Well, that's the way it's ending up. It's not necessarily conscious decisions. In fact, the conscious decisions are those made by people who have choices. And they are scrambling to put their kids in more advantaged schools. We sometimes talk about that as a, a drift from public to private schools. But it's happening, it's happening within the public system itself and to a lesser extent within the private system. There's this scramble. What that means is that we've got a very high concentration of strugglers in disadvantaged schools. And for reasons I'll explain in a minute, if, it, if, if, if you want, that is, that is really pulling down our overall achievement levels in Australia and showing us to be relatively poor performers next to similar countries. And, I mean, that comparison you know, is really important as a way of understanding that we're not getting, you know, the educational opportunities for all our kids that, you know, public education or education in general promises. And where does Gonski fit then? Because on one hand, it's been the great hope, hasn't it, um, that these reforms when implemented, if if ever implemented in full, might actually start to address that gap between the highest performing and the the lowest performing students, uh, Chris, but it, it hasn't delivered that and in fact the the gap is wider than ever I mean is there a simple answer to, to why I think I think the answer lies in this enrollment separation between high SES and low SES schools and we can measure how this is increasing over the last 10 years interestingly around about the same time as the Gonski review Julia Gillard established the my school website and yes, we there were a lot of complaints about it at the time, and I agree with most of those. But it provided school by school, year by year, data about what was happening to our schools, and we're able to measure the way that kids are shifting from low SES to high SES schools. High SES schools are growing in size, and low SES schools are just static. And low SES schools, the achievement rates are falling behind. So that's that's the pattern. Would Gonski have done anything about that if it had been implemented to some extent because in shifting fund to low SES schools, if that was done and done properly, it would have made these schools more attractive. Um, They would have been better resourced. They would have started attracting back those other really important resources. And I'm not talking about money here. I'm talking about aspirant kids, you know, the kids that really try to do well at school and who are bailing out of low SES schools if we could get those kids back and balance the enrolment of our schools, a lot of those other problems would go away. We're speaking with Chris Bonner, former teacher and secondary school principal, and he's also co-author of a really fascinating and detailed book called Waiting for Gonski, How Australia Failed Its Schools. And, I mean, as with any major reform, you can see the power of lobbyists kind of as a thread through this book. Whenever there's a a review of this type, it's kind of a national review, there's always going to be some interest and sometimes powerful interests who try to um, influence the the proposals that that might come out of that. 
and what might be politically feasible for any given government. But we see that there is some level of, of kind of being on the same page with Gonski that maybe hadn't happened for quite some time. And, and in the book, it was really interesting to me that, that you outline how, on the one hand, the Gonski Review did acknowledge that power of peer effects. So having aspirational students in, in schools with a bunch of other students from kind of a, you know, a mix of demographic backgrounds um, results in, in sort of higher educational outcomes overall, but then was in a way preserving this kind of demographic segregation by allowing non-government schools to continue charging fees um, at their discretion, regardless of the level of pu- public funding. So this idea that if a school did receive um, you know, a certain portion of, of public funds um, to raise it, its educational outcomes, then that should impact on what kind of fees it might be able um, to, to, to have for, for students who are going to those schools. To what extent has that been sort of a hamstring on what Gonski could achieve and, and what governments were willing to put in place? Yeah, and this goes back, you know, and this goes right back to the mid-1970s to the Carmel Review because the Carmel Review also declined to address the reality that some schools are receiving government funding and charging fees at the same time, whereas other schools were just funded by governments. And, and yes, the Gonski Review failed to address that. Uh, the feeling was, gosh, um, if fees are fa- paid by parents, this adds to the total, the total um, uh, store of resources for schools right across Australia. And to some extent it does. But those fees act as a discriminator. Not an, not an active discriminator, but when a school charges fees, it, it effectively enrols higher SES families and children, um, whereas those that can't afford the fees go to the, the schools that don't charge fees or are able to gain fee exemptions or whatever. And that discriminator was, yes, it was left in place after the Gonski Review. And um, unsurprisingly, the fees just kept on rising particularly in the high-fee schools, um, there was clearly no, no inhibition on the part of those schools uh, to, to keep, keep sending their fees up. Uh, and, and we have to... And, and this gets to the solution we're offering in our books, which is quite... In one sense, it's quite bizarre, and people are going to sort of wonder about it. But what we're saying is, because we are now funding private, most private schools, about two-thirds because we are now funding them almost to the same level as government schools enrolling similar students, why not fund them the extra 5% or whatever's needed to fully fund them and say, in return for that full funding, you must not charge fees? Now, that has a fascinating implications for all sorts of things, including school choice. That makes us very, very pro-school choice because we're saying that if you have a a substantial uh, commitment to faith and you want to enrol your child in a faith school, we're saying that you should not need, you should not have to pay fees to do that. But that school must not act, must not discriminate in its enrolment uh, on a a financial basis. They must enrol all children who are interested in attending. Now that would provide a real challenge. So there's something at quite a low cost that would amount to a substantial restructuring of the way we do schools in Australia. Other countries do it. 
And Chris, that's, I mean, that's we? exactly the opposite to what happened back in the 1800s where um, when public education became a thing um, and then funding was taken from the, the Catholic education system that was already there. And I think that's, you're actually proposing something that is the opposite of what <laughs> set us on this path in the first place, which is just, I mean, what do you see as a barrier to, you know, to what you just proposed then? You know, that's a good point, Charlie. We, we, did, we did make that mistake then. And we made that mistake in, in, in an opposite way to countries like Canada in the late, 90, in the late 1860s. Canada um, incorporated its uh, Catholic schools into the effectively the state-provided system. But they were still allowed to be Catholic schools. They were fully funded and they could retain their, their Catholic special character. Um, so, sorry, Carly, I missed the second part. No, I mean, I, I actually, I want to ask another question. Um, I, I mean, going to the politics, I mean, we're seeing review after review of aged care. We've had the same for mental health uh, as well and a whole range of different areas that are called these kind of wicked policy issues in Australia. Yes. And I wonder, I mean, when it comes to education and the many reviews we've had over many decades and the inability for any reform to actually address the kind of disadvantage we have in education and that we're reinforcing through education, how much here should we be looking to, to politics as the reason why these reform or reform in education doesn't get off the ground? Look, it is, and, and uh, it is also... The, the interest groups, the pressure groups in Australia and the political parties in very loose terms uh, line up on one side uh, promoting equity uh, in, in funding and, put, and funding the need where the need is greatest. Uh, and that tends to be tends to be the Labor Party, the Greens and the uh, school sector unions. On the other side, you've got the Catholic and independent school peak groups that tend to push back against that. And one of the dictums that they enforced on Julia Gillard was that no school should lose a dollar in any change. So in the end, Gillard um, and Gonski, in a sense, had to come up with a, a solution that meant that no school was going to be worse off. Now, you know, if you've got a limited budget to fund schools right across Australia, the notion of keeping well-funded schools ahead of the game and not reducing their funding in any way is a real nonsense. But, of course, that really excited virulent opposition from uh, the, uh, the non-gov school peak groups and, of course, from the coalition parties, the National Party and the Liberal Party. And those, the, the coalition parties and the non-gov school peak groups formed a very strong um, um, alignment that went right back to the 1960s. And um, and Chris, just just while we've got you, I mean, this doesn't go exactly to what's what's covered in the book, but obviously there's been a whole lot of disruption to education over the past couple of years, and there's real concerns about the kind of disadvantage that we've spoken about this morning being exacerbated in the years ahead. With you know some students maybe not having the most sort of stable home life and not getting the education they might if they were in the classroom, whereas others might have actually benefited from being in, in a focused environment with dedicated support if that was available. How concerned are you about just how these kinds of issues of disadvantage and, and the haves and the have-nots, the gap between those worsening um, in the years ahead, given what, what we've experienced over the past couple of years? Yeah, look, every time we get a disruption, every time we say, for example, the, the last couple of years, 
um, on average, students don't seem to have been greatly disadvantaged by the on and off, you know, functioning of schools in the last two years. But a closer examination shows that the most disadvantaged students are falling further behind. Another crisis is emerging in the, in the area of teacher supply. And you don't have to look very hard to find that the schools that are really struggling because they can't get the teachers they need uh, are, the, uh, are the public sector schools, including in the bush, and uh, those teaching the most disadvantaged children. Um, we know that now just from scanning the, the data that comes out of schools. So really, um, if anything goes wrong with the system, as has happened in the last two years... Some kids miss out far more than others. So it goes to the heart of the question, should we then just quietly renovate the system we have or really is it time for a rebuild from the ground up? Yeah, and I, I guess the, the reality is that what we're looking at and what we're looking to address uh, as a society is that a child's family situation, socioeconomic situation, does dictate their educational opportunity. And our education system at the moment is entrenching that. I mean, that's I'm not over overstating it there, I don't think, Chris. And, I mean, you know, you've, you put forward one... Um, an idea this morning of just funding all schools on the requirement that then there's no additional fees levied. Is that the kind of level of reform we're looking at now to start to level that playing field? In a sense, Carly, we've got to go back in history. As I say, to Canada in the mid-19th century or to New Zealand in the 1970s or to Britain after the Second World War and, and, and to most of Europe today where the norm is to have the church schools as part of a, the state's provision of education and without any controversy, you know, without any blowback or whatever, it doesn't seem to matter. It's just accepted. Uh, because we went down this different path, we've created a sort of a one-way track for ourselves. And go, Yeah, you're right, going back is going to be really, really hard. But we've got to look at other countries. and we've See, the Gosky Review should have and could have done this to look at practices overseas and to see if there are essentially structural reasons why we're in the pickle we're in. But they didn't go far enough. They decided really on a renovation and a lick of paint here, a lick of paint there, but that's not going to work anymore. No, and it hasn't worked now. Um, uh, Chris Bonner, thank you so much for being on Triple R and um, congratulations uh, on the book. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Last week it was announced that the popular music streaming interface and online store Bandcamp is set to be acquired by Epic Games, a massive gaming company behind the likes of Fortnite. For years, Bandcamp has been celebrated as an artist-first platform which allows anyone selling music and merch through the site to set their own prices and receive the lion's share of revenue when they make a sale. But this latest news has prompted some concerns about whether the site will continue to benefit independent artists as it, as it always has or go more in the way of other, other streaming services that deliver very little revenue to content creators. Ron Knox is Senior Researcher and Writer for the Institute for Local Self-Reliance over in the US. He's published some really interesting analysis on this issue on Twitter. And so we thought we'd invite him onto the grapevine to talk about um, this issue that a lot of people here in Melbourne are talking about. Uh, Ron, welcome to Triple R. Thanks for being there. Hey, Dylan. Thanks for having me on. 
And so, first up, I mean, you've been involved in Bandcamp itself. You've written articles for them, and, and you say that you're a fan, you enjoy what they offer. What is it about the platform that has attracted you? Well, I mean, you know, to me, uh, it functions as um, the best possible uh, online and digital version of an old school brick and mortar record store. It's a place where you can go, you can discover new music that's um, in line with your music interests, maybe adjacent to your interests. And when you do that, um, the site uh, encourages you as a uh, Um, as a listener and as a music fan to actually buy the music from the artist and from the label that's putting it out. And it's really the only place in the digital world where that's happening, where the, um, you know, the very exploitative streaming model isn't the dominant thing. It's actually buying the music. And I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, I'd love you to speak about that a little bit more on that sort of streaming versus shopping idea, because, you know, I, I mean, a lot of people, uh, at Triple R, a lot of people listening will buy um, music from Bandcamp. I certainly do, um, but it is quite different to what people might be familiar with if they're not using Bandcamp and using a streaming service. Can you kind of dig in a little bit more about what what the experience is? Why it's so different? Yeah, sure. So, so you know, the functional difference as a as a as a user, as a music fan, um, is that you know we all have some familiarity with the streaming platform. We know how Spotify works. We know, certainly know how, you know, YouTube works, for example, which is basically music streaming. Um, you know, where you go on, you, you know, maybe you pay um, a monthly subscription fee and you can listen to whatever you want and you can stream it once or you can stream it 50 times and it doesn't matter much. On Bandcamp, um, you can, you know, enter the site by, if you just if you know the band you're looking for, you heard about a band from a friend, you see a band's coming to town, or maybe you go through uh, their editorial site, you find the band this way. Uh, on mobile, you can listen to an album, uh, I believe three times is like the default you know maximum. And then after those three plays, the app encourages you um, to uh, actually spend the money. Um, to you know, put your money where your ears are, so to speak, and actually buy the record. And once you do that, then it's in your collection, and then you can obviously stream it um, on mobile as many times as you want. So it's a very different model. That's the functional side, and there's a the financial side where um, if you stream an album um, on you know Spotify ten times, that artist uh, who you just listened to you know ten times in a row uh, gets you know, fractions of a, of a, of a penny, so to speak. They, there's very, very little revenue that comes from that. Whereas if you want to listen to an album 10 times on Bandcamp, you're having to give that artist eight, nine, $10, whatever it might be, um, after Bandcamp takes its cut. And that's real support. And that really matters for, for independent musicians. Yeah. And so there's that sense of, of discovery and, and almost replicating a, a bricks and mortar record store, which, which, you know, you spoke about and a lot of people, you know, find that, you know, a really enjoyable experience through Bandcamp, but also the fact that they do deliver much more revenue to artists, um, you know, as a proportion of the, of the money that they make through Bandcamp has, has been a, you know, a really good selling point as well and makes people feel good about using the platform too. So, so let's go to this news about the, the acquisition. Can you just sort of fill us in on who Epic Games is and, and, and how significant this is for the, the digital media landscape? 
Sure. So Epic Games is one of the largest video game uh, you know, producers uh, in, in, in the world. Um, multi-billion dollar company uh, and makes, you know, Fortnite certainly is their headline game uh, among among many others. Um, it's a, a absolutely massive company and, and, you know, beyond just the world of video games, um, Epic is very, very deep into this idea uh, of content, of, you know, content of um, all varieties and, and, and the various ways that um, the people consume content, whether it's, you know, playing a video game or watching uh, a Twitch stream or watching, uh, you know, VOD on YouTube or whatever it might be. This is what Epic Games does. And this is what really drives um, its business model, which is these kind of, um, you know, these micro payments, these aftermarket sales uh, of various things on the game. Uh, and Epic bought, you know, bought Bandcamp. Uh, uh, you know, at first there was some speculation that it might just be a partnership, but this is an outright purchase of the entire Bandcamp, uh, you know, platform uh, and business model and the technology behind it and editorial products and so on. So it's a it's a big deal. There was no 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 dollar amount disclosed for this, um, but uh, but you know certainly a massive change for the once independent Bandcamp. Yeah, I mean, who owned Bandcamp previously? Well, it was owned, um, you know, essentially primarily by, um, you know, by the CEO and by uh, a couple other executives and then by workers. So, you know, you talk about a change in a change in model for 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 ownership. You go from this very internalized, um, very independent, you know, structure um, to suddenly being owned by this massive you know, video game company um, that is, you know, 40% owned by, uh, you know, by Tencent, the Chinese corporation that also has a stake in, you know, Spotify and a stake in various record labels and so on. So quite different. Yeah, it's a, it's a big change, isn't it? And, and I mean, the co-founder and CEO, Ethan Diamond, has tried to alleviate any concerns um, of what, you know, what might happen through the acquisition, saying that the products and services you depend on aren't going anywhere. I mean, are you convinced like that? Do you think that Bandcamp can retain its sort of independent ethos and and everything that, that people are really connected with through the site, given, uh, you know, being owned by, by a much larger corporation such as Epic Games? Yeah, I mean, I'm not super hopeful. Uh, look, I mean, so what I do for, for, <laughs> for a living is I, I study I study corporate consolidation. I study this kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, I study what happens in the wake of mergers, of like big takeovers like this. And um, it's rarely all good. And the acquired company, the target company, rarely maintains its true independence in the form that it was in before the acquisition. It's just almost impossible. You can't imagine that that would happen when you have such a vast change in, you know, corporate structure and um, what we call, you know, profit motive, right? The, the, the ways in which the, you know, the two companies make money, they're quite different, honestly. Um, I, you know, you ho- look, 
there's a there's a pathway here, I think, with this deal where Epic could do Bandcamp a lot of good. And I can talk more about that if you'd like. Yes. But I mean, oh, you know, but overall, I, I, I have serious, serious concerns um, about Bandcamp's ability to maintain its current business model, even though it is profitable. Bandcamp. Um, you know, just because of the vast difference in these two companies and the way they operate. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I mean, we we'd really like to hear some of the potential upsides, I guess, um, what ban- what Epic Games might offer to the Bandcamp model. But what are the kinds of concerns, I guess, you have? Is it is it around things like artist income? It is around things like artist income. I mean, I'll start with the good, and then we can move on. Let's do that. Uh, yeah, go, go on. So, so I'll, start, I'll start with the good news, and then we can move on to the potential bad. Fantastic. Although, and this is all, this is all speculative, so who knows. But look, you know, one thing I do know is that there are parts of Bandcamp that, um, that could be better, right? Um, you know, first of all, it, it's um, uh, if you use, um, you know, if you have an Apple device and you use iOS, you cannot purchase a digital album from your phone in order to continue to stream it, which is the thing you ultimately want to be able to do. It, that has been um, a real barrier you know, for Bandcamp. And the reason that you can't do it is because of Apple and Apple's control over, um, over all digital payments on its platform. So anytime you make a digital payment on, on an iOS uh, you know, device, you are giving a 30% cut to Apple. Bandcamp says, look, we, you know, we have to take our cut because we have because we post all this infrastructure. So we're going to take you know, 10%, 15%. But then if Apple takes 30% or more off the top of that, then these artists aren't, aren't going to make any money. And that's not what we're you know, setting out to do. So, so we're just not going to accept payments and we're going to make everyone buy the album on a desktop, which is a crazy old school way to do things right so um so that's not great um and epic knows knows apple it understands this fight because it's been locked in a lawsuit against apple over this exact issue for a number of years now so if anyone is um you know is able to go to bat for Bandcamp and its ability to um, accept money on ios devices it's epic so that could you know ultimately be very good um, also, Epic just has a lot of really kind of interesting interfaces, interesting technology that could help Bandcamp be better. Its app is a little bit clunky. Uh, you can't make a playlist on it, for example. There are just these weird, you know, shortcomings that you think, okay, a little bit of money, a little bit of investment, a little bit of experience might help. Okay, so that's so that's maybe some of the benefits um, that that you know that could come out of this. The downside is that. You know, you understand Epic and their business model, and what they do is they they are they're essentially a subscription kind of company. They give stuff away for free, but they say if you want anything extra, you have to either make these micro payments or you have to subscribe. And the subscription unlocks you know certain things. And to my mind, it says, okay, that sounds to me like a streaming platform, and that's my real concern. Is that Epic looks at Bandcamp? It looks at it as pure content, not independent musicians and record labels who are trying to make a living. It looks at it as pure content, and it says, you know what? You have all these songs. You have the ability to stream. Why don't we just make people subscribe, and then you can stream the, the, you know, the songs that you want to stream instead of actually having to buy the records? My concern is that it would undermine the entire idea behind Bandcamp, the entire reason why independent musicians and labels flock to it and love it and respect it um, and and that uh, you know discerning music fans go there to 
to uh, to actually put some money down uh, and buy the things that um, that artists and independent labels are creating. So that's my real concern. There are others, of course, but um, but I see how Epic operates Fortnite and some of its other properties, and it really speaks to a very very different business model than Bandcamp. Yeah, and I mean that's that's a pretty big concern, isn't it? We're speaking with Ron Knox, senior researcher and writer for the Institute for Local Self Reliance, um, based over in the US. And I mean, on that note, the you know the whole sort of music industry is stacked so much against independent artists. It's very difficult to make money from music. I mean, obviously, you know, touring through the past couple of years has been pretty difficult but to get revenue from some of these streaming services as we've spoken about is is really hard and pretty much impossible to make a living out of that unless you're a huge artist who already is getting pretty good income anyway but given that that broader state of things and the fact that so many independent musicians are almost conditioned to be ripped off I mean do you think that that, that potentially there could be a, a significant reduction in revenue that artists get through Bandcamp that could still be maybe, you know, maybe more than some of the, the, the streaming services like Spotify and the like, but might be far below the roughly, you know, 80% um, they might get through through Bandcamp as it currently stands. Yeah. I mean, it's a, look, it's a, it's a huge concern because as soon as you start to chip away at the Bandcamp you know, model, the business model that, as you said, allows a huge chunk of, um, of, uh, you know, the revenue from a single album sale to go to the artist and the label. Once you chip into that and you chip away at that and you start to, you know, you start to reduce that, you start to reduce the ability for Bandcamp to actually provide a kind of livable, usable amount of money to these artists, um, who, uh, they're, you know, as you said, entirely independent. Almost everything on Bandcamp. There's, the, you know, the major labels don't really have a presence there, and that's not why people go to Bandcamp at all. It's like the opposite of that. So you're dealing with these independent bands, independent labels. They have, uh, you know, a couple of different ways to make money. Streaming is certainly not one of them. They're not Justin Bieber. They're not. They're not Taylor Swift. They're not. You know. They're not the the kind of 1% upper echelon Spotify artists that can really make money on the streaming platform. So, so what are they doing? They're playing gigs, they're playing live shows, they're touring, and then they're trying to sell albums and they're trying to sell merch. Both of those things happen on Bandcamp. You, you sell albums, both the digital album and all of the physical, all of the various forms of your physical album. Um, you know, tapes and LPs and CDs and so on, and you sell your merchandise. The great thing about Bandcamp is that you can sell a $15 T-shirt. You can sell your, you know, your hats, your whatever it is that you make for your band. It's all right there. And it's, and, and that, you know, like that is important. You can't tour everywhere. As a band, you can't tour everywhere, especially over the last two years. I mean, you basically haven't been able to tour at all, more or less. Um, I don't know how, you know, life has been down there, but that's certainly how it's been. Ah, it's about the same. Um, I, I wonder, yeah. you know, the way the way that you describe it, and I'm, I'm a big user of, of Bandcamp personally, and, yeah, you're describing something I'm so familiar with that I'd almost forgotten how special it is, actually. Um, and so, yeah, the idea that we can keep a platform or have a platform or artists, particularly artists can have this platform to interface with their fans and their, and their listeners. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's very precious. Uh, it's a very it's precious very thing. Precious. Mm. It, it's very, very precious. And, and, and the fear is that, you know, Epic, look, 
like Epic is a company like any other company. It's a big corporation. It's figured out how to make a bunch of money. And, and uh, I can almost guarantee that it's, that it believes it's money making philosophy. It's profit maximizing philosophy is great and should be applied everywhere to everything. Mm. So once it, but once you, you know what I mean? But then once you start applying that idea to Bandcamp, to this kind of precious ecosystem, this very independent ecosystem, um, you start cutting into you know to revenues that smaller artists and smaller labels rely on to make it by, and that's my concern. It, it's that it's going to have this knock-on effect on the actual creators of the art, and um, and it's going to it's going to force people to to do things they don't want to do, which is maybe not be in a band, maybe not 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 work as hard at it, not be able to make that next record, all, all these things. You yeah, know? It's, um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of the reasons, as we've spoken about, that people go to Bandcamp and use it as musicians is, is you know, because of um, the sort of the ethos of, of the site itself and the fact that they, they do give, you know, a very large portion of the revenue back to artists. And, and I mean, I know there's been a lot of concerns in sort of independent music circles in, in Melbourne, but, you know, Bandcamp's global. Um, I'm sure these conversations are happening in many countries across the world. Do you imagine that that some of the the concerns that are being voiced, um, you know, could be heated heated by Epic, or that um, that uh, you know Bandcamp might not even sort of be um, anywhere near as popular as it is at the moment if they go down the full kind of corporate money making path rather than preserving some of those um, those elements uh, that we've discussed? Yeah, that's the fear, right? I mean, I I, th- I think that's exactly right. So first of all, will Epic will Epic heed these concerns? Will it listen to the all of these um, all of these worries from the from the various communities that are so invested in Bandcamp, maybe. But look, when you know when companies, I don't know how much money Epic spent on Bandcamp, but it wasn't a small amount. And you know when companies make these deals, again, they have an idea in mind. They know they know what the plan is, and they you know especially Epic uh, that 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 craves and you know desires the content above all else. It looks at Bandcamp as content, and it has a plan for that content. And I don't know that you're going to dissuade Epic from 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 following through on that plan. So that was the one question. The other question is whether you degrade the experience. I mean, you know, like that's my concern. There is already Spotify. <laughs> there is already Apple Music. There is already YouTube. The thing that makes Bandcamp special is that it's Bandcamp. It's this different place. It's this curated, editorially driven record store in the in the in the digital world where anyone can access it and 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 that's important that anyone can access it on either side right i don't care if you're like four like teenagers in a in a basement you can record (laughs) a tape you can up you know you can record you can upload it to Bandcamp. you can and you can sell your music that day you can promote it any way you want to promote it and so on and that and i mean and that is so crucial and then if you're a fan you can access it just the same and and you can have this you can have this interaction in this quiet little independent space um that isn't flooded with major label money and artists and churn and all that kind of stuff so you're not gonna you know if the idea is to try to turn Bandcamp into more of a spotify there's already spotify Good luck with that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Bandcamp, you know. Dear Epic Games, congratulations on Fortnite. Please leave Bandcamp in its special <laughs> yeah. spot in our hearts. Um, right. Yeah. Right. Mm. 
Thanks so much, Ron. It's been a real pleasure and enlightening speaking to you today. And um, let's wait and see what happens, I suppose. But, you know, lots of things to be justifiably concerned about. Really appreciate your time. Great talking to you both. Thanks so much. Ron Knox there, Senior Researcher and Writer for the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I think they're based over in Kansas in the US and um, joining us today to talk about Bandcamp's acquisition by Epic Games. Lots to unpack there. Let's wait and see what happens. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.